Our Father and God, we thank you that we can come before you, the God who brought us into being, who made this universe, and the God who speaks to us through your word. The God who, by your mighty spirit, speaks into our very hearts. And we ask, Father, that um, your spirit might do his work this morning of doing that, of applying this word uh, to our hearts so that we might see Jesus. Amen. Well, last Sunday, a gunman attacked a Catholic church in southwest Nigeria, shooting people uh, inside who were celebrating Mass, shooting people in the car park, leaving 54 dead. Uh, The number and the location, it had been a peaceful area, meant that it made the news. But there are many massacres that do not even make the news. We live in a world uh, where people are killed for being Christian. Now, violence is bigger than that, and it's directed at other uh, groups as well in, in other places. But globally, we live in a world where people are being killed for being Christian. A world which is dangerous to follow Jesus. A world where it is safer to compromise with the culture around, to fit in with it, uh, rather than to stand out to be different and to make yourself a target. It's easier to be silent. It's easier not to speak of your faith. It's easier just to fit in. Sometimes the government itself can be the one that brings the oppression, the fear and the violence. And sometimes in the middle of all this fear uh, and hard times, God seems distant, Silent, maybe even absent. This is the world that Esther lived in. A world where the covenant people of God lived in fear of the state that had passed a law that said that they were to be wiped out. That's the story that drives the whole uh, book of Esther. A fearful day had been appointed where people were, you know, encouraged, uh, allowed, ordered by force of law to go out and attack the Jews. They lived in fear of this day which had been appointed and which at the start of the book is about 10 months off and is getting closer and closer. But in chapter 9, we finally get to that day and we see the most incredible reversal Uh, that takes place. For although they feared the day, look at chapter 9, verse 2, and and you see that on this day the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Um, The tables being turned is such a beautiful phrase to kind of describe what happened because... Uh, at the time when they assembled uh, to protect themselves, and you'll remember that 
Esther had approached the, the King Xerxes and says, please um, uh, let my people live. And he'd passed that law to say, you've got a right to, to self-defence. Well, they, they lent into that law and they assembled together. Uh, and wherever they, they were being attacked by people seeking their destruction, um, we're told there in verse, in verse 2, no one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. So instead of the Jews being fearful of, of death, now the other nations around are fearful of the, of the Jews and are not acting against them. Doubtless they'd seen the rise to power of Mordecai, the death of, of Haman, who instigated this plot against the Jews, uh, and they'd realised that everything had shifted, that Xerxes' allegiance was now for the Jews and not against uh, the Jews. And so the nations, we told at the end of the last chapter, some of them had even started becoming Jews themselves, uh, and they're not wanting uh, to join in. Well, not completely. We'll see there's still some violence that, that takes place. But there is a fear there of uh, the Jews, and specifically in, in verse 3 we're told uh, that all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the king's administrators, helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. See, the, the political winds have shifted now, and the ones who would have brought the persecution, the bureaucracy of the Persian Empire, now realise that Mordecai is the one they need to fear. He's the one who's been favoured by Xerxes, so they want to keep his favour and not act against him. So their fear of Mordecai is actually the thing that's going to protect the Jewish people. So this great day of fear ends up not being uh, the Jews being fearful of their uh, genocide, but instead the people around being fearful of Mordecai and the power which he uh, incredibly has been given. Rather than being impaled on a stake that's prepared for him, instead his enemy, Haman, is. This reversal of... Uh, I was about to say fortune, but you'll see that's the wrong word as we go through this. This reversal of situation is, is the huge theme going through Esther. The tables are indeed being turned. Um, and it's a time of terrible uh, killing and violence that takes place. In verses 5 to 15, you see this um, violence that takes place in the very heart of the Persian Empire, in Susa. Remember, right back in chapter 1, the, the whole story of Esther opens in the citadel of Susa, the great drunken party where Queen Vashti is summoned and won't take place where all the, the highfalutin uh, officials of the empire are gathered together, well, now it becomes the scene of uh, a, 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 a terrible violence uh, where, verse 5, the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, uh, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. So... They've been given this power of, under, the, under the law, the new edict of, of Xerxes, of, of self-defence. And even though the political situation has shifted and the bureaucracy is not going along with this, there's still enough people attacking the Jews. There's still such enmity there that they do act with this kind of self-defence, uh, such that 
500 uh, are killed within the, the citadel of Susa itself, the six. So in the very heart of power, you have um, Jew-hating uh, Persian uh, bureaucrats who want to see the death and destruction of the, the Jews, even though uh, it's, it's clear what will happen uh, to them. And then, uh, if you look at verse 7, uh, and you'll be grateful this wasn't in the reading, uh, Melissa, uh, the, the ten uh, sons of uh, Haman are, are named there, uh, and each of them uh, are killed. So Haman's line is kind of wiped out. Um, I've never ever baptised a kid with one of those names. Uh, uh, not popular. Uh, these, uh, this line comes to an end and with it the possibility of vengeance from uh, this family. You know, this long enmity which starts before the, the book of Esther. We've seen it goes back to um, Agag. Uh, it's brought to an end as these ten sons are killed. Uh, it's very, uh, I was going to say Shakespearean, but this is where Shakespeare gets it from. You know, that, that idea that you, you wipe out all the children in order that the enmity will uh, be finished. Um, but the thing that they don't do in verse 10, even though the law allowed them to do this, it says that they did not lay their hands uh, on the plunder. It's a strange little description there, um, but it's the language which is used earlier in uh, the books of... Um, of uh, Joshua particularly, uh, of uh, holy war, where God had commanded uh, his people to go in, to take a city, uh, to, to uh, take over a nation. Uh, they weren't just to plunder it like uh, the nations around would at times of war. Instead, it was to be kind of set aside for a destruction. Uh, the goods weren't to be... Uh, the thing that drove them. It wasn't to be a mercenary kind of expedition. Uh, and in some ways, it, uh, it, it's, it's a, it, it, there's a particular history here for King Saul uh, had decided that some of the plunder looked just too good uh, to just give over to destruction. And so he kept uh, some of the livestock and so on when he fights against King Agag. Agag's the one who stands behind Haman, he's the, the ancestor of. Um, and so there's this long wrong that had stood over uh, King Saul's action and had brought the covenant people into, into judgment uh, because of that. 1 Samuel chapter 15 tells that story. And so there is this symbolic kind of writing of that ancient wrong. You know, we're not going to plunder. We are going to instead treat this like the holy war that it, it, it is. Um, and not just in Susa, but also beyond that, out into the provinces, you'll see that they don't plunder. Uh, so from verse 16 on, you get the, the provinces. And the provinces, it's enormous. You've got to remember just how big the Persian Empire is from India, you know, up to Turkey, down to uh, into into Africa, up up into Afghanistan. It's really, really big, uh, and across that Persian Empire, uh, seventy-five thousand are killed on this day. You know, this is a day where a lot of blood uh, is shed. 
But it is not the genocide of the Jews that the whole story had kind of been fearful of and anticipated. But instead, it's those who would attack the Jews, uh, who in self-defence are are killed. And from that day, which they would have feared, and their survival of it, uh, and the removal of their enemies and the turning of the tables there is this celebration that comes um, uh, when the enemies are removed like that. And a feast, uh, the Feast of Purim, which is uh, to continue uh, and is still celebrated by, by Jews today. And unlike the other feasts, uh, which, which come up in the laws of Moses, you know, that you, sh- you must celebrate on this day and do this and so on, that comes from God to the people. This one comes from the people as they see this incredible, miraculous thing that's taken place and they realise that their times of lament and mourning and prayer and calling out to God have been answered and instead, with the removal of the enemies, they can come into a time of feasting and, and, and joy and, and celebration. Um, it's, a, it's a pattern of, uh, that marks the reversal that God, although he's not named, has, has brought about. Um, you, you see that there in uh, verse, say, verse 22. Um, uh, they, they celebrate this annually at the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy their mourning into a day of celebration. Um, you think you'd be heading to your own funeral and instead it's a, it's a wedding feast. You know, that's the, 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 the difference that's taken place. He, he, that is Mordecai, wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and, and gifts uh, to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they'd begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. So there's this reversal that takes place and there's an acknowledgement that God is the one who, who stands behind this, providentially acting to save his people. Um, therefore, verse 26, these days were called Purim, uh, from the word pure, uh, pure. Uh, and, and pure has, is what uh, Harmon had used right back in chapter 3, I think it is, to cast the die, to kind of decide what's the most uh, fortuitous day to destroy all the Jews, you know? Uh, and it's that casting of the, of the die, of the light, of the, the kind of uh, handing things over to the, to the superstitious powers to see, you know, what's going to be the, 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 the luckiest one. Um, uh, that itself... Um, is shown to fail for you know the Persians have used all their all their powers and belief and um, and they do have all sorts of magical beliefs and stuff going on but they'd committed themselves to this role of the die and the 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 fall of the dice had been shown to be kind of in the hands of God who will actually provide for his people so it's not actually luck which drives this universe. There aren't actually fortune and forces out there that decide which days are, you know, felicitous and which days are not. 
the lot of God's people is in the hands of God. The lot of this world is in the hands of the God who made this world and who knows when, you know, uh, who knows the, when a sparrow falls, who knows the very hairs on your head. Um, this universe is not run by luck, fortune, chance, dice, stars. You, I hope you hear just how un-Australian that belief is. You know, we, we live in a country which, I know ironically, but describes itself as the lucky country. You know, we live in a country where it's impossible to buy newspapers uh, at the newsagent because the queue to buy lottery tickets is so long. We live in a country where you can't watch the state of origin uh, without drowning in um, uh, gambling ads, you know, or, and the, the, even right under the jerseys now and across the screen. And there's always a side bet. There's always something else going on. There's always a handing over of the fortune and, and what might be to the powers of pure, to thinking that somewhere out there there's a force in the universe that you just need to tap into if you're to find success. Um, Esther, the Feast of Purim, laughs at that and says, no, no, our times are in the hands of God who gives you your every breath, your every heartbeat, your every moment is in his hands. Why trust yourself to the roll of a dice? He is the one who is um, greater than that. And so each year, uh, there to remember that uh, and to come forward to, uh, to celebrate that. Um, and I think if, as they did that, uh, there could be no kind of hiding. You know, we, we, we start the book with um, Esther not revealing... Uh, who she is and who her family is and her faith, but as Purim is celebrated, that they would be forced to kind of out themselves as people who trust, not in the thing that the rest of the Persian Empire trusts, but instead in the God who controls their time and, uh, and saves them. Um, it's a wonderful feast. It's, it's a wonderful uh, celebration uh, that, that takes place. Um, and it's not disconnected from the hard times and the uncertainty and the fear which they'd gone through. Uh, in verse 31, uh, uh, it, it, it says this. Um, Mordecai, the, the designated times which they had to remember is the times when Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them and as they'd established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Um, Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim. It was written down in all the records. So it's not just the, the feasting and the fasting and the, and the giving presents, but it's also a recognition that that comes after uh, times of fasting and lamentation. So the fasting first and then the feasting. The, the fasting makes sense of the feasting, to realise that they had gone through this fear of uh, death uh, to then be brought through that to see God's uh, salvation. 
And the book ends with this beautiful um, and fitting praise of Mordecai, who is really this model, I think, of how to live as one of God's people in a, in a faithless empire. Uh, chapter 10, verse 3, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, prominent, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem uh, by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Um, so here is the hope of being Jewish outside of Israel. And um, there is this massive scattered diaspora of uh, Jews that live outside of Israel after the exile, and they will uh, appear at odd moments in the Gospels, hundreds of years later as you come to Jesus' life, where Greeks come to see Jesus. Um, the Greeks there are probably not you know, Gentiles with no connection, but people who lived in the what is no longer a Persian empire, but is, a, is, is the leftover of a, a Greek empire. So God's people are scattered beyond Israel and some of them come to Jesus. And so when you come to the day of Pentecost, I think you see some of those people being described. From all over the world, these people come and they will be the ones who then, uh, are the, the, the gospel goes first to them and then out to Gentiles and, and to the nations. So Mordecai kind of gives a, a model of how it was that Jews could live as God's covenant people outside of Israel. That's a really important missing kind of link in the puzzle if we didn't have the book of Esther to see how they describe themselves um, like that. And Mordecai, in being in such a preeminent position and caring for uh, the, the people of God and able to do something about it, again, you've got to think this is such a reversal of situation, not fortune, reversal of situation, because he, at, the, at the, the start of the book, was the only one who won't bow to Haman. Um, and it seems partly for that, you know, that he is the one who is, is raised up. But you've got to think, you know, God's people are still in this very vulnerable position, for it depends on a kind of Xerxes being in power and it depends on there being a Mordecai and who knows what ruler uh, might come next. And after the Persian Empire, there'll be the Greek Empire and then the, the Romans, each one bringing their own form of oppression and horror. And when Jesus comes, he will speak to people who know oppression very well and speak to them of freedom the freedom that only he can bring, a freedom which is bigger than just uh, a political freedom and a kingdom which is bigger than a kingdom just of this earth. Um, the kingdom which Jesus brings promises a good king who's able to provide for his people and give them safety and a, a legacy uh, and a future. So the big question about you know, whether God will save his people, well, we see in the book of Esther that he did. Uh, and there's many times in the Old Testament where he does and where he proves his faithfulness. But there are also times through the Old Testament where you see God's people coming under the judgment of God because they've failed to keep the covenant. You know, um, But here, that's not the story. Here, Haman's evil plan uh, to wipe out the Jews... Uh, 
was unable to thwart God's bigger plan that he would call this people to be his own and through them to bless all the nations. You know, God has a bigger plan that will not be thwarted by Harmon's evil plan. And God won't always save every believer. Not everyone makes it out of the lion's den like Daniel. Not everyone makes it out of the situation that faced um, uh, the people in in Susa. Uh, People who believe in God are not always saved from a terrible uh, and unfair persecution that might even lead to death. Jesus himself shows that. The early church record in the book of Acts shows that. Yes, sometimes Peter and John will escape from prison, uh, but sometimes Stephen will be stoned to death. Um, The same today. Uh, Sometimes the missionaries will make it out of Afghanistan against impossible kind of odds, it would seem. But sometimes the church in Nigeria will be attacked by government. See, there is a promise, though, that God will save his covenant people and that through them all the world will be blessed. There is a promise that there will in the future be this great day of reversal where the king of kings will right all wrongs. Um, The Feast of Purim... Is not just about that one kind of moment where they were spared from genocide. It's, it's the trust that they have in the God who stands behind all that, unacknowledged but with his hand, um, dictating the course of history for his purposes and his ends. It's knowing that God will be good and faithful to his people, and to his promises, uh, and to his world. Um, it, is a, it is a promise which we can see so much clearer um, with Jesus, you know, and, and uh, his resurrection, and his promise that he will return, and that on that day there will be no more crying or mourning or wailing, uh, and the old order of things will be put away and everything will be made new. We are still in a world which uh, uh, suffers and, and groans and grieves uh, and has massacres and, and terrible things, but we live in a world whose course is controlled by the one who promises that great day of reversal. And without that hope, well, there is no hope. Without that hope, you might as well be rolling dice and giving yourself over to the goddess of Felicity and Fortunus and, you know, taking bets on mysterious forces that you can't control. No grounds for hope. Uh, in any of that. But if God has spoken, and he has, and if God promises to act, uh, and he will, 
then we're on absolutely solid grounds. We're standing on a rock uh, to uh, take our stand uh, in that place, uh, to, to hold on to his word. Uh, and you see him able to use even uh, uh, evil uh, persecution and evil that men do for his own good purposes. You know, Jesus was not crucified uh, in order that the gospel would go forward throughout the whole world. And yet, that's exactly how God used it. The evil that man intended ended up being the, the, the way that God chose to save uh, his people. Uh, God didn't save Jesus from that death, but he did rescue him from death because death could not take hold of him. He raised, he raised him from the dead. So we're able to get a bigger perspective, not just of suffering, but also God's plans. And here is where our trust can be firmly planted. Even when terrible, evil things like that killing in Nigeria happen. You know, the book of Esther is a testament to that. And I'm amazed at the way it leads us to this place where we can have greater trust in the God who will save his people when the whole book doesn't even mention his name. When the empire around doesn't necessarily acknowledge uh, that he is the one acting in their very midst, um, controlling their history, um, making sure their days. The parallels to 21st century Australia are so strong. We live in a time when um, people are more likely to, to trust themselves uh, to the lotto machine uh, than the Lord who made them, which is madness. It's absolutely crazy that you would invest time and money and hope uh, into an algorithm that stands behind the lotto, you know, instead of the living God who made you. We have got a great uh, living hope that we need to both hold onto for ourselves and hold out uh, to a world that needs Jesus. I hope Esther has, has been a helpful book for you to see some of that, I, I feel like I've learnt stuff myself and I've got more to learn um, from it. Um, but why don't, we, why don't we pray as we, um, uh, as we finish uh, the book together. Uh, Sandeep's going to lead us in a moment, but let me, let me kick us off in prayer. Um, our Father in God, we thank you for the faithfulness of um, Mordecai and, and Esther uh, who, at a, at a time of your choosing, were used by you in the most remarkable way to save your people. Father, we thank you for the way it helps us to laugh at earthly powers and their plots and plans against your people. We thank you for your goodness and your power and your strength and the way that you can reverse um, the evil that, that, that is around us uh, for your glory and for your good. And Father, we ask that your word here may continue to do its work uh, in our life.
that we might be trusting ourselves to you um, and to your goodness uh, and to be refusing to bow before the powers of this world and to be refusing to be fearful of the things that this world might fear. Amen.